I have stood in enough grocery store lines to know what sells tabloids. You know, what else do you do in a grocery store line, right? Other than read the headlines of the, the inquirer type things that are in front of you. And I've noticed that one of three things will sell. If you really want to sell a tabloid, you either got to have something about aliens on there, or you got to have something pretty raunchy, or you have to have something with Bible prophecy. You know, the Bible predicts this massive apocalypse. That sells. And, and, and I can understand, well, non-Christians probably fear. Uh, Christians wanting to know when Christ comes back. That makes lots of sense to me. Uh, but so some very prominent Christians over the years have looked at the, the, the text, the word of God, and have determined when they think Christ would come back. Pope Sylvester II, he predicted that, and you got to know this created a bit of a stir when the Pope said this, January 1st, 1000 AD would be the time when Christ would come back. Well, January 2nd, he realized that he had made a, a, an error in the fact that it was 1,000 years after Christ's death and resurrection. So he changed the date to 1033 AD when Christ would come back. Other prominent believers, uh, leaders have said, no, 1260 AD or 1370, 1504 was, was predicted as a time when Christ would come back, 1524. Mathematician um, Michael Stifel he said that Judgment Day, he's very specific here, this mathematician types. He said Judgment Day would begin at 8 a.m. on October 19th, 1533. So that, that's when it was supposed to be, according to his understanding of the Word of God. Also, dates that were predicted for Christ's return that went unabated. 1673, 1694, 1700 was actually a big date. 1757, 1793, 1814, and 1829. John Wesley, from the Wesleyan Church, Methodist Church, he said Christ would come back in 1836. A guy by the name of William Miller, and you may not be familiar with William Miller, but he said that Christ would come back between March 21st, 1843, and March 21st, 1844. Gave it one year span. Well, on March 22nd, 1844, he said he had made a miscalculation. Actually, he'd come back in October 1844. In November 1844, what he ended up saying was, we're still not sure, we're working on it. But a lot of his following left his Baptist church and started an Adventist, the Adventist movement, the denomination. And if you've been in an Adventist church and that's part of your history, you know there's a, an emphasis there on, on prophecy. Um, 1840, 1844, 1847, 1861, 1863, also dates that the body got themselves worked up as far as waiting for Christ to return. Charles Taz Russell, perhaps you know him of the Tower movement, Jehovah's Witnesses. He said 1874 Christ would return. 1875 there would be a resurrection of saints. 1878 the rapture would happen. 1914 final end of the day of wrath. Now Joseph Smith of the Mormon fame said no, Christ is coming back in 1891. Jehovah's Witnesses uh, said 1914 would be the day they were expecting him back. Edgar Wisenant. Now you probably may not be familiar with Edgar Wisenant. However, he was actually the first person that I came across who was really this way. You remember his book, 1987, it came out, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Had to Be in 1988. Well, January 1st, 1989, he realized he made a mistake. New book came out, 89 Reasons Why the Rapture Had to Be in 1989. So that one wasn't as big of a seller as you can imagine. Hal Lindsey, back in the 70s, said that Christ would come back in the late 80s. Harold Camping from Family Radio, we know all about uh, Harold Camping, he pu published a book in 1994, or four, 
1993, Title 1994, uh, claiming that that is when Christ would come back. Well, Christ didn't come back in 94, and what he ended up saying was, well, he was supposed to according to the Bible, but just like with Nineveh, when Jonah preached that God was going to destroy it, God gave grace and didn't do it. God just gave grace to the people. Well, Jerry Falwell, in 1999, he said that Christ would come back within 10 years. In the year 2000, 2000 was a good year for predicting Christ's comeback. Uh, Timothy Dwight IV. Now, Timothy Dwight was the president of Yale University in 1800. And Timothy Dwight in 1800, as the president of Yale, said in the year 2000, that is when Jesus would return. Sir Isaac Newton predicted that Christ would return in the year 2000. And the psychic Edgar Cayce said Christ would come back in 2000 as well. Now, Harold Camping was back at it for 2011. This wasn't too far back. We remember this. He said the rapture would happen in May 21st, 2011. In October 21st, 2011, the end of the world would come. Now, problem with it. I remember, I remember watching a newscast just days before his prediction date came out. And, of course, they were having a great time with, with him. But I just remember hurting and wishing, Lord, would you please come back? I, now, I knew, I wouldn't think the Bible was, was that way. As a matter of fact, I knew for sure he wouldn't because he said, Jesus said in Mark 13, he said, that day and hour, no one knows. No, no, not angels in heaven, not even the Son. So I knew that day he wouldn't come back because I'm guessing that Jesus knows more than Harold Camping and Jesus said no one knows the day Jesus couldn't figure it out. Certainly Harold Camping couldn't, couldn't do it. But the media, as you can imagine, had a great time, if you remember this, on, on, with, with Harold. The uh, late night TV hosts mocked him. Problem was, he said that the Bible says this and so a lot of folk who didn't search the Bible just assumed maybe that it did. But since it didn't happen, just another reason to believe that the Bible was bogus. And uh, a lot of his people uh, quit their jobs, took out their, emptied their bank accounts, put up these billboards all over uh, America, in, in Erie as well. They, they got in buses and they went all over America proclaiming this day of, of, of uh, doom. And so when it didn't happen, uh, democracy just continued. It's crazy to me. I don't. I think most of these people, not all of them, were very sincere and meant right and truly believed it. And this should be just a lesson for us. Just because you believe it, really, really believe it, does not mean it's true. But, but you, you, you step back from this thing and say, oh, something that was designed with, in their mind to be evangelistic actually worked against it. Well, you want to distance yourself. I wanted to distance myself from that. And you want to tell people, no, 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 the Bible doesn't say that. No, all Christians don't believe. You want, to, you want to pull back. Problem is this. There's a lot of scripture that deals with end time stuff. Scripture, if I'm not mistaken, my understanding of the word of God, scripture that's just as inspired as John 3.16. It's just as much inspired as the texts that talk about Jesus' death and resurrection, no less. And when we, I, would, I would assume... That God didn't give us meaningless, useless things. He gave us what we needed. And if we choose, we're not going to look at it. We're going to ignore it. We're going to neglect it. We do so to our peril and to the kingdom's peril, humanly speaking, anyway. Now, Christians, we can fall into a couple different avenues with this thing. If we're not going to 
ignore it, neglect it. Some people just allegorize and spiritualize it all the way. It's an allegorical spiritual kingdom. It's a spiritual resurrection. It's a spiritual or second coming. It just everything is spiritualized and uh, we just never know if it's going to happen or not because it's all otherworldly. Other folk, and this is a problem with, this is a tendency with, with the fundamentalist folk, which camp I, I grew up in, uh, they get so obsessed with it. You know, they've got their charts going, and they've got all the different books, and they've compared it, and they compare the headlines on a regular basis to the, and they try to interpret the Bible via the headlines, and they, they've got it, they've got it all figured out. They've got it down. And you've got to ask yourself, that, I mean, why was this given? Why were those passages given? Obviously, to not, so it would be easy to pick the time, because a lot of folks smarter and more godly than us tried, and they messed up. They didn't get there. So what, what is the, the reason? Why are these things here? We mentioned last week, as we start to look into this, these texts, number key question we have to ask ourselves is, is not, what does it mean for me? We got to get there. You got to get there. But first question is, what did it mean for them? We answer that question, and we're going to have a whole lot easier time trying to apply it to ourselves. Now, last several weeks ago, we went through first six chapters of Daniel, the Lion Whisperer. If you missed any of those, I encourage you to go get the podcast or whatever. Uh, it's free. You can download that, listen to it. Um, but then we would come into chapter 7. And the problem with chapter 7 through 12 is it reads a whole lot different than 1 through 6. And if you read Daniel 7 through 12, like you're reading 1 through 6, you're going to really be scratching your head and pretty sure that this is bogus type stuff. Uh, what we mentioned last week is that chapter 7 through 12 is a special kind of, of literature, apocalyptic literature, they, they, they call it. Um, and if you want to understand it, you have to, you have to interpret it according to its genre. Now, you know, as well as I do, that there are different types of literature. You, I want to write a letter. I want to write a novel. I'm going to write sci-fi type stuff. Maybe I'm going to write a love poem. Maybe I'm, I'm going to write an angry note to my bill collector. You know, whatever. We, we know that there's different types of literature that we can write. And each one you have to interpret differently. I think I used this illustration years ago. But uh, uh, one of my sweethearts when I was younger much younger, Kieran Carpenter. Oh, I love Kieran Carpenter. And, 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 and remember, um, why do birds suddenly appear? You remember the song, right? Uh, maybe you haven't heard that way before. But anyway, <laughs> Kieran and I are not doing duets. So anyway. every time you are near, just like me, they long to be close to you. And then the bridge. On the day that you were born, the angels got together and decided to create a dream come true. Some of y'all know the words better than me. Uh, so they sprinkled, I think it was moon dust in your hair of gold and stardust in your eyes of blue or something like that. Now, but when that first came out, when you heard it, how many of us got hopping mad? Said, oh, police, those carpenters are trying to deceive us and they're lying. I'm, I'm so sure the angels did not get together and they wouldn't sprinkle stuff that people would go blind if they did we didn't think this way. We did not try to interpret this with that wooden literalism. We realized this was kind of a love poem. We realized exactly what they were saying. Oh, she must really, or he must really, really care for this one and thinks they're the best thing in the world. It was love poetry you interpret different than the way you would interpret a recipe. Right? And so, last seven chapters of Daniel, you've got you to have a whole different mindset than those first six. Otherwise, you're going to get it all messed up. You're going to start setting dates and all kinds, all kinds of stuff. And so, so again, we've got to ask ourselves, what is the purpose of, 
of apocalyptic literature? Why is it there? Here's my, my guess. Like the rest of the Bible, all of it, God here allows you to peer into the future that you might have a fuller today. Goal is not to entertain. It's not to give us, let us pick dates. It's not to help us to have a new hobby. It's, the goal is sanctification. It's to grow us. It's to help us have a big faith. And so if, in fact, you know folk, and it's easy to just study the end time stuff, but their life is not changed, they're just missing it. And I don't think in God's mind, even if they get it all perfectly figured out, they know who the Antichrist is, and they got all the bulls and judgments, and they got it all, they got the timings, and they know they got it all down. But if their life is not changed, I think God is shaking his head going, oh, you're missing it. They're just missing it. So what we want to do this morning is we want to look at Daniel chapter 8. And then we're going to go through that and then draw some quick observations of what it means to us. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to look at Daniel 8. But just before you do, let's pray. And in the sanctity of your own heart, would you just utter a simple prayer and say, Lord Jesus, would you show me what you want me to see? Would you help me to hear your voice and change me accordingly? Amen. Turn with me to Daniel 8. As you're turning to Daniel 8, last week we looked at Daniel 7. Uh, what Daniel came down to in chapter 7 is that there were four kingdoms. He was in the top one at that point. He was in Babylon. But there were going to be three more following. The Bible would, would announce all these in Daniel 7 as beasts. Uh, Daniel 7, real important, doesn't identify those. It tells us they are kingdoms, but it doesn't tell us what the identity is. We drew the identity from history, but just so you know, we drew a little of it also from Daniel 8. Because here, Daniel's going to look at, back in chapter 7, he looked at the fourth kingdom, especially that future Antichrist. But in chapter 8, he's going to look at kingdoms 2 and 3 a little bit closer. So 8, chapter 1, says, in the third year of Belshazzar's reign, that would have been 551, real important, just get that dean in your head, around 550 B.C., I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa, in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Uli Canal. I looked up... Oh, excuse me. Now, where he is in this vision, he's about 230 miles from Babylon. He's in an ancient town that is really kind of a nothing town at this point. But one day, this town would become a, a... headquarters of the Persian Empire. One day, Queen Esther would be in this town. One day, Nehemiah would be in this town. Real important place. Now, how did he get there? Probably wasn't there physically. Think of Ebenezer Scrooge when the spirits take him to the past or to the future. That kind of thing. That's probably how he's there. And verse 3, he says, I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as he charged towards the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against him and none could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. Well, then Daniel, he's going to go through his vision. Then he stops and he asks for interpretation. Verse 15 says, While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Uli calling Gabriel. Tell this man the meaning of the vision. Now, this side point. In scripture, only three angels are named. Gabriel, Michael, you know the third one? 
It's Lucifer. Okay, those are the three angels that are named in Scripture. Verse 19. Gabriel, this is what Gabriel tells him. Gabriel said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. Uh, Daniel's writing this in 550. Babylon's still ruling the roost. Media Persia's not going to take over for another 12 years, but they were up and, and, and rising uh, group. So Daniel probably aware of them. But that nation is named here by the angel. It's the, the two horns, Media and Persia. Uh, they were uh, tribes that were distantly related. They formed an alliance way back when. And when they did, Media was actually the more prominent one. In no time, though, uh, Persia took over. Persia and its power, Persia and its presence and its influence. Persia was actually the main guy here. And that's really the two horns that, that, that ran the show there. Um, Persia grew into the most enormous empire the world had known at this point. Babylon was earlier. Persia's bigger yet. Now, for us, a lot of times we don't even think about this because this was so long ago. But the scope would have been incredible in this before electricity, before all the mass communication. These guys were, were cruising. Now, one of the things that you need to know of, because they got themselves in a little trouble this way, it would come back to haunt them, is the kings of Persia. You can see they went all through Asia Minor. They went down to Egypt. They went way out east. But they, it, when they were in Asia Minor, they went right over in here, which is Ionia. Now, Ionia is owned by, by Greece, at least back then. At least Greece thought so. A lot of city-states there. They weren't on Greece's mainland, as you can tell, but they were. this kind of same thing happens today. Here, this is in the news all the time about nations feuding over this island or that island that was out. Well, Greece said, these are ours. And Persia came in and said, ah, maybe used to be. Now they're ours. And then on two different occasions, Persian generals raided, invaded Greece's mainland. Totally humiliating. To, to, caught them off guard, totally embarrassing, humiliating them, and, and it just made them hopping, hopping mad. But Persia was, 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 was ruling. Persia was the ram. And then in the vision, he goes on. He says, as I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes, think unicorn or maybe rhinoceros, uh, unihorn, whatever you want to call this thing, with a prominent horn between his eyes came from the west. Notice where he came from crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. He was flying. He came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and had charged at him in great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him. The goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him, and none could rescue the ram from his power. The goat became very great. But at the height of his power... His large horn was broken off, and in its place four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. And then in the interpretation, verse 21, Gabriel's talking to Daniel, and Gabriel says, The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation, but will not have the same power. Now, Philip Malcedon was the king of, of, of Greece at, at, this, at this time. And he was so angry, he planned an invasion of Persia. Now, you know, look at the map. He just was going to get killed, basically. And he kind of knew that, but he was just going to go out in glory. So he's going to invade. But what happens 
is he gets murdered just before he can do it. Well, his boy, his, his 20-year-old son takes over. His 20-year-old son, who was tutored by Aristotle, his 20-year-old son, who had already led armies, takes over the whole empire. His name is Alexander. We know him as Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great knows what his dad wanted to happen here. And so he mounts a campaign. And in 334, he attacks Persia. He goes across... They'll spot there at Granicus is the first major battle with Persia. Decimates them. Decimates them. So the Persians are kind of reeling. Oh, what is that about? He goes down to Isis. Now, that's not the Isis like we're familiar with. It's the city, uh, ancient city. And again, meets major Persian uh, resistance. Wipes them out. He then goes down. He's going to take on Egypt. And on his way, according to Josephus, he stops at Jerusalem, which is right there. And his goal is to destroy Jerusalem. And so he's getting ready, he's starting to lay siege. And according to Josephus, what happened is the high priest of the temple in Jerusalem came out to meet Alexander with a scroll of Daniel 8. And he showed him, he said, Alexander, the god of the Hebrews, who kind of lives here in Jerusalem... He said that you're going to take over Persia and you're going to be huge and there's going to be no stopping. It's going to be incredible. Well, Alexander is impressed. And so he didn't destroy Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, what he did is he went down to, to Egypt. He wiped out Egypt. He came back and he, he, he enriched Jerusalem. He gave them bounty. He loved these guys like them. Their God must be okay because he likes them. So he goes on. Then he meets up with uh, at Arabella. It's the final battle with Persia. Persia was waiting for him. They had about... Some say over one million warriors. Alexander's army, 35,000. There's no way he should have won, right? But he's not called Alexander the Great for nothing. And he, he decimates the Persian. And Persia is now done. Their final stand, they're gone. But Alexander doesn't stop. He keeps going. Matter of fact, he goes all the way to India. About the time he gets to India, his, his, his army, as you can imagine, that's a long walk. His army's kind of wore out. They've been fighting them, killing all kinds of people. We're just tired. Can we just call it a day? And so he says, okay, let's go back. So they go back to Babylon. In Babylon, Alexander, his, uh, uh, he has a very, very high fever. He dies at the age of 33 years old. When the horn was prominent, when it was strong, when it was healthy, it was broke off. It was done. Now, because Alexander was so... Young when he died, he hadn't made any preparations for the history of his empire to continue. And so as soon as he died, he had two boys. Both of them were murdered immediately. Uh, he had generals who fought with each other for about 20 years to see who would take over. Finally, the generals said, let's just divide up the land. Four other horns came up and, and divided. Next, we got uh, Cassander took over uh, Macedonia, Greece. That was the homeland. Okay. Then Lysicus took over a lot of Asia Minor, basically. Seleucus. Well, Seleucus got a lot of stuff, didn't he? He got all the east, Seleucus. And then Ptolemy got Egypt. You've heard the Ptolemaic uh, dynasty. There you, there, that's where that comes from. Um, so that, that was the, the four horns. Now, Daniel keeps looking in this vision. What, does, what is going on? And suddenly he comes through something that comes across something that's a little bit familiar, if you remember chapter 7. Out of them, or out of one of them, that's out of one of these four, came another horn, which started small but grew in power. 
to the south, to the east, and toward the beautiful land, which would have been Palestine or, you know, Israel. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth, and it trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the prince of the host. It took away the daily sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Because of rebellion, the host of the saints and the daily sacrifice were giving over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Then in the interpretation part, verse 23, Gabriel's talking, and he's interpreting this for Daniel. He says, in the latter part of their reign, that's the four, uh, when rebels have, have become completely wicked, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. That's an important line. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. Now you might say, I know the little horn, I know who that is. Chapter 7, that's the Antichrist. And I would answer yes and no. Because the little horn in chapter 7, which was the Antichrist, came up out of uh, that fourth empire, the the last empire. This is uh, coming clearly out of Greece. Now, most scholars, as a matter of fact, just about all of them, everyone I was able to check on, agree that this was a guy by the name of Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And you may be going, what? Who in the world? His capital was Antioch. It was named after him, Antiochus. Antiochus, though, we might be going, what? Back then, they weren't saying that because they knew this guy. He was very wicked, very powerful, very cruel. He had all kinds of power, no uh, respect for human life. When you've got incredible power, incredible pride, no respect for human life, bad things happen. And sure enough, Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, bad things happened. He turned his focus and attention towards Jerusalem, towards the Jews. And history says this is why. Because he would require people to refer to him as Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes is the great one. Antiochus the great. And so wherever he went, and he went, went the parades, and people, Hail Antiochus Epiphanes! Hail Antiochus Epiphanes! But when he went to Jerusalem, he was requiring this of the Jews as well, and they came out, but they all began to scream. They got the word wrong. And they said, Hail Antiochus Epiphanes! Which means Antiochus the idiot. Well, you can imagine, he was not, li- but the Jews thought this was hilarious. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, did I say it wrong? Epiphanes! So yeah, they would let him have it. Well, he did not respond real well. He's trying to put his whole kingdom together. By the way, side point, one of the things that the Greek Empire did is very interested in Greek, you know, we all think our heritage is the greatest, wanting everyone to think like him and and be be Greek. And so they took the Greek language throughout the whole empire. Koine Greek, New Testament was written in preparing the world for the spread of the gospel in just a couple hundred years when it was to come out. Uh, But Antiochus said, okay, here's the deal, Jews. It's illegal now for you to worship your God. On top of that, it is illegal for circumcision to take place. Now, circumcision, I don't know how they tested, checked on this one, but, but circumcision was a deal where they would say, I am loyal to Jehovah God. And he'd say, no, 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 not anymore you're not. Now you're loyal to Zeus and the gods of, of the Greeks. And he said, not only that, but it's illegal to keep the Sabbath. 
And not only that, it's illegal to keep any Jewish festival. And not only that, it is illegal to read the scripture, Jewish scripture, or even to be caught with it, because if you do, it's a capital offense. He went on this major campaign to, to burn and destroy all scripture, anything he could come up with. Um, he was very violent and wicked, and if you were to disobey, he acted fast and furious. Lots of terrible, terrible stories in, in history. Uh, just to give you an illustration, though, he uh, took a, a mom, Jewish mom, he had a big piece of metal, almost like a big frying pan, uh, underneath the fire, and he made her watch him toss her children on there, one at a time, until they were dead. Seven boys. And then he knocked out her eyes, so the last thing she saw in this life would be the images of her sons uh, breathing in pain and dying. And he laughed. This was, this was Antiochus. This is what he did. Now, he was so angry with, with Jews that at, at one point he went down to Egypt. He was trying to take over Egypt, met a Roman garrison there that pushed him back, humiliated him. So he's already very upset. Walks into Jerusalem, and what are the Jews saying? Antiochus Epimenes! <laughs> well, he, you know, he had it. They had a bad day. Wiped out 80,000 Jewish people. Men and women and little boys and girls and infants. It didn't matter. Murdered, massacred 80,000. Took 10,000 more away back to his home to make them s- slaves. The, the worst thing that Antiochus did, though, the most vile thing that he did, is he set up a statue of Zeus in the temple. And he said, this is your God. Demanded that the Jews worship it. And if they didn't, you know what was going to happen. Then what he did himself, personally, he took a swine, a pig, and sacrificed it on the altar and spread its blood all over the, the temple, which was incredibly defiling. The Jews made mass exodus from the temple area. It was so defiled. This is what is referred to multiple times in Daniel and in Matthew as the abomination that causes desolation. It causes it to be desolate. And so they... they, they, they he defied the temple. He, Antiochus, for those folk, was certainly the Antichrist of the Old Testament, I guess. Um, never before had somebody come with such power or vehemence against God's people. I, never before. Now, Antiochus, I mentioned earlier that he wasn't the Antichrist because he is what fulfilled this prophecy. But on the other hand, he was a type he was a prototype. He was an uh, example of. This is not strange to the Bible. And I think it's Genesis 14. You've got the story of, of uh, Melchizedek. And Melchizedek was a priest that Abraham came across. And they really didn't know much about him. But Abraham gave him um, honor. Well, in Hebrews chapter 7, it says that that Melchizedek was really a picture of Christ. Somebody who, who we didn't know how he started, we, where he came from, we didn't know his, his, his beginnings, but, but we worship. And so Hebrews tells us that there are types. Isaac in the Bible was a type. Remember, Abraham takes Isaac to Mount Moriah, tries to kill him. He's the only son. He's carrying the wood on his shoulder. He's, he's going to die. And then God steps in at the last minute and saves him. 2,000 years after that, Jesus would go up, perhaps even the same place, Mount Moriah, carrying the wood on his shoulder, the only son. He would die, though, for the sins of the world. Isaac was a type of Christ. Here, Antiochus is a type of the uh, Antichrist. Now, we, we mentioned several things in this, this regard. Um, if you 
look this out, think this through. Antiochus' reign, if you were able to, his persecution against the Jews uh, lasted seven years. Antichrist in Revelation 13, which if you want further study, Revelation 13 is the Antichrist chapter. Uh, he reigns 30, there's seven years. Uh, Antiochus was somehow empowered demonically here. He had power not his own. He would die, but not by human hands. There's just something more going on. Those kind of things are not said about every leader in the Old Testament, even every ungodly leader. It's not said like that. Somehow, Antiochus has is, uh, got some sort of supernatural thing going on here as well. And of course, Revelation 13, this is what the Antichrist is. Also, you, you find the uh, Antiochus pour, pours all of his ener- energy and all of his vehemency and all of his evil and hate against God and God's people. He sets himself up as God in, in the temple. Uh, we find Revelation 13, it's a picture of what the Antichrist is going to do as well. So Antiochus, even though he was future yet for the exiles here, as we look back, he was past, but he shows us what this individual will do with God's people. Certainly, the Antichrist coming could not be worse than Antiochus for those people he slaughtered. He will be worse in scale, will be global versus um, localized. Um, how long does this last, though? Verse 13, he says, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, and the surrender of the sanctuary and of the host that will be trampled underfoot. How long will the temple be shut down, is what he's saying. He said to me, It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, or that's 2,300 evening sacrifices and morning sacrifices. Then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. Now, there's two different thoughts on what this number means. Both of them will fit, actually, but let me just give you one of them. Um, 2,300 total sacrifices, morning and evening. That would be basically two sacrifices a day. It's 1,150 days. Um, The temple would be shut down. Now, at one point, you don't have this in your text. You want to read the... Maccabees and the, and the Apocrypha, this is where you get a lot of this, and Josephus will talk about it as well. But uh, Judas Maccabees, with his sons, who's living at this time of, of Antiochus, they're hiding outside Jerusalem, but they muster, they stir up a revolt, they come back in, and they wipe out Antiochus' armies. They, they push them out. They re-secure Jerusalem. They shut them down. The walls are, are, are up. Then they, they, they rededicate the temple. Or the, the temple has been rededicated uh, December 14th, I think it's 165. Um, from that point on, sacrifices began again. This is what the Jews celebrate as Hanukkah, right? This was the Feast of Lights. This is this in December with, with us as well. So they're they're still celebrating this today. But it's 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 a it's a time that is is mentioned that he mentions, and you say, well, okay, that's real interesting. It's fascinating type stuff, maybe even. But really, so what? I mean, really, I mean, I, I go to work tomorrow. I, I don't like my job, by the way, and I might be, be laid off anyhow. My uh, spouse and I have been struggling. I've got some kids who are into some crazy things. My health, they're not sure what the issue is financially. I mean, really, this is nice and all, but really, so what? Who cares? Again, that's, that's an important question. I think you've got to ask that question about every text of Scripture. And the way we get to it is say, what might this have meant for them? 
the people back then, these exiles in, in uh, Babylon, or when you get to Revelation, these folk who are under incredible persecution during the fourth beast in, in, in Rome, what did this mean for them? What did, well, I think, here's where we can get some application. I think we were to wait with anticipation, not anxiety, and not sensationalization, or that's the word I made up, sensationalism. Um, a lot of Christians, our hope is, our thought, no, our, our thought is that obviously this stuff is given so we can pick dates, so we can figure it all out, so we can, we can make it all work. We kind of like solving puzzles, and this is obviously a huge puzzle, and so we want to put it all, all together. And again, we go back to the purpose of Daniel 8, 7 through 12. is the same purpose as the rest of Scripture. It's to make us godly. And if it's not doing that, we're, we're, we're losing. And if, in fact, we got all this stuff down and we're reading all the books, we don't necessarily read the Bible, but we read all these, these novels uh, about end times, so we got it all down, but um, we understand it. But there's no fruit in our life. You need to know. We're just missing it. I'm not opposed to studying eschatology. I think we should. It's a key doctrine in Scripture. But we just have to be humble enough to recognize it's the most clouded doctrine in Scripture. We know for sure Jesus is coming back. Several years ago, a handful of folk got together five fundamentals of the faith. The fifth one they said they all agreed on. And they're from different backgrounds. Jesus is coming back. Second tier stuff, though, is when and what it's going to look like and the events around it. And there are folk who want to split the church. Denominations have been split over this end time stuff that you just have to hold with humility. You say, I, I, I think if God wanted us to know the specifics, he'd tell us. I, I really think this is why he gave us so much detail, but cloudy detail. Because he wants us to know, I got it down. I got it. I'm in charge here. But I didn't give you enough to pick dates. So we, we want to make sure that we um, know God's word, that we care for God's word, that it does what it's supposed to do in our life. And that we're not just using it as hobby or sensationalization type, type stuff. Robbie Robbins was an Air Force pilot. He was in the second Iraq war. At the end of his 300th mission, he was kind of surprised to be told, get your crew together and get your plane home. So he got his crew together. They took off. They landed in Massachusetts. They got the long drive, but they, they took off back a car ride to Western PA. Well, his buddies dropped him off at his home early morning. And as he got, started walking up his driveway, across the, the, the door, big sign, said, Welcome home, Dad. He thought, how in the world did they know? None of us contacted anybody to tell them we were, were coming. It was last minute. We just wanted to hurry up and get out of there before they changed their mind. So how did they know? And then he says this. He says he, he walked into his house. He said, when I walked in the house, the kids, about half-dressed for school, screamed, Daddy. Susan came running down the hall. She looked terrific, hair fixed, makeup on, and a crisp yellow dress. How did you know, I asked. I didn't, she answered through tears of joy. Once we knew the war was over, we knew you'd be home one of these days. And we knew you'd try to surprise us. So we were ready every day. Isn't that great? You know, we want to know when he's coming back. And here's a quick question to ask yourself why do I want to know that really will it make a difference now forget the well if I know he's coming back tomorrow I'm not paying my bills okay forget that part for a minute okay <laughs> forget all those things but will it make any difference if we knew he was coming back tomorrow six months 200 years from now if you say well he's coming back tomorrow I better change some things well I'm telling you you better change them then okay? that, that, that is a 
definitely a perversion of the end time stuff to think he's not coming back for a while, so I got some margin here. We, we, we don't. Our lives should be lived today. This is why he gave this to these exiles back then. Live today in light of tomorrow. Be changed today in light of tomorrow. That's the goal. I think another thing we see in, in the text, another thing that the exiles would have gotten, is wait in expectation of opposition. Expectation of opposition. Now, possibility, you might not meet the Antichrist face to face. But I'm guessing that probably somewhere along your life, you will meet an Antichrist. You say, well, what are, you, what are you talking about? Well, First John 2, 18 he says this, he says, Dear children, this is the last hour. They believed everything from Christ's death to his coming back is going to be the, the resurrection to his coming back is the last hour. This is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. Well, even now, many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. Second John 1, 7. He says, I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the Antichrist. And so I, I'm guessing that you, myself, we've come across some antichrist. We've had some antichrist situations. What do those look like? Well, let's look at a, a text from Revelation. Very fascinating text. So remember, this is the Antichrist chapter 13. It says, It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. In Revelation, apocalyptic literature, very into into numerology, lots lots of numbers. The number seven in Revelation especially is the number for moral perfection. It's God's number. It's it's, it's, it's complete. It's perfect. So the number for six, the number six, that's man's number minus God. And Isaiah, remember this? When Isaiah's in the temple, cherubim, seraphim, they see God and they say, holy, 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 thrice holy. And three, it's, it's complete, it's full, it's, it's, it's this one that, that, that the cherubim are seen in the temple cannot be anything but holy. He's pure holy, he's max holy, he's holy on steroids, he's completely holy. Here, this person is going to be six, six, six. They are, there's not a hint of godliness or ability to be godly in them. They are completely, purely impure uh, they, and look what happens if you don't take the mark. And I don't know if the mark is a microchip, if it's branding, if it's tattoos. Listen, we don't gonna, who knows? I'm guessing it's probably none of those things. We don't know. Um, but what will happen if you don't take it? Well, you can't buy or sell. So, so this, is, this is an antichrist situation that you may find yourself in, I might find myself in. Whenever you come across something, a person or a group or a, a, a team, a philosophy, whatever else, and they are encouraging you to do something you know God doesn't want you to do. And they're telling you, no, that you don't want to do that. But if you don't, if you don't agree with them in some way, whether it's your silence or whatever else, if you don't agree with them, there's going to be some ramifications. You're not going to be able to eat. You, you, you might lose your job. You're going to lose the peace. You're going to lose that relationship. You're going to, you don't want to offend. There might be some, some opposition. There's going to be some issues if you don't agree. And so what happens when you agree? You just got to know this. What, that, what you're doing is you are taking the mark. That's what you're doing. I know we think, well, well, uh, one day if this really happened and I was here when this happened, I wouldn't take the mark. If you're taking the mark today, you know what? Probably then 
you'd take the mark as well. Probably so. Probably so. So let me ask you, have you taken, are you taking it even now? Now, listen, I'm, 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 I realize I've got enough Peter in me as well. All of us have probably had times where we've betrayed, denied Jesus. All of us have come to the crossroads and we've taken the mark, we've chosen. We, we have, but here's real important. If you can hear me, if you're here today, there is hope. This is why Jesus came. On one level, Jesus took the mark of of the beast when he took our sin. He took my sin for me. I don't have to take it, nor do you. There is forgiveness. There's there's grace. And so you might be saying, you know, I've been living my whole life like that, taking the mark, whatever's easiest, whatever's going to get me further ahead, whatever's going to create the the least waves. That's the way I've been living life. Then maybe right now, it's time to say, I'm I'm done with that. I'm not going to be marked with Christ's blood. I'm not going to be marked with the Antichrist, the mark of the beast. You know, there, there's one more thing that I think we have over the exiles. Again, this is, this, is, this is future for these guys. For us, as we look back, it's history. But I think what that can tell us is that can inspire faith in who God is. If God went to such incredible, detailed, radical specificity in fulfilling his prophecy, he's going to fulfill it in the future as well. And we'll all stand before him and say, well, I'm not, we can't say, I'm not sure you're going to do that. No, he's got all kinds of examples of, you know, he has done that. And, and a, a key message of the text, then, is that our, our faith would grow because we trust him. It, it's, I need to wait with, with anticipation. Not anxiety, not sensationalism, but anticipation. I need to wait with the expectation of opposition. This world's not my home. This shouldn't surprise me. This shouldn't catch me off guard. I should be ready. And when it comes up, I need to know that I've already made my decision. I'm not taking the mark. That's all there is to it, whatever the cost may be. The world may hate me. May it not hate me because I'm obnoxious. Instead, may it, if it's going to hate me, may it be because I've, I'm not denying Jesus. And then thirdly, we, we wait with a trust in him. that He's going to do what he said he's going to do. This is why... Christ pulls back the veil and allows us to see tomorrow that we might have a fuller today, right? 